Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is David Marquet. David is a best-selling author, recognized leadership expert, and a former U.S. Navy submarine commander. His book, Turn the Ship Around, a true story of turning followers into leaders, was named number one must-read business book of the year by Fortune magazine, with the USA Today listing it as one of the top 12 business books of all times. David's tenure brought the submarine Santa Fe earned widespread military recognition. Stephen R. Covey said it was the most empowering organization he's ever seen and wrote about David's leadership practices in his book, Eight Habits. David has a new book called Leadership is Language. David, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on your show and welcome all listeners. Yeah. So for those that don't know, how did you sort of engineer this transformation that's, you know, it's uh, kind of become sort of uh, legendary within the Navy? Well, engineer is a generous word, I would say. (laughs) So my story is, as I came up through the Navy, I had a reputation of giving good orders, getting my team to do what I needed them to do. And it was very satisfying to be the one giving the direction and the instructions and having people bend to my will. And I would motivate or inspire or coerce or bludgeon them into doing <laughs> what I needed to do. The problem was, well, there were a couple of problems. Number one was when I left, often the organizations regressed to the way they were before. Ironically, this was just more evidence of how great of a leader I was and how much they needed me. <laughs> and so the Navy kept promoting me. I became a submarine commander. I was going to go to one ship. And after 12 months of training, technically, on every detail of that particular ship, I was diverted to a different submarine because that captain quit because that was the worst performing ship in the Navy. And he'd been there a couple of years. It wasn't getting any better. And to his credit, he resigned, which is very unusual. Usually you have to get fired and carried out (laughs) on a slab. Uh, But he resigned abruptly, and it was just before I was going to take over. And the Navy said, no, 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 you're not going to the Olympia. You're going to go to Santa Fe. And I was like, no, I fell (laughs) down on the floor in a fetal position. And so I was like, no, not anything but that ship. The worst (laughs) reputation. The worst morale, the worst performance. And it's a different, by the way, guys, it's a different kind of submarine. Yeah. No, nah, no, nah, you'll be fine. So I go over there and I have this weird out-of-body experience. It's like Alice in Wonderland where I'm, I'm accustomed to knowing all the answers. Yeah. And, and I had to learn some new behaviors. First behavior was I had, to, I had to get comfortable with admitting I didn't know something. Yeah. And it sounds sort of like basic leadership 101, but... It was hard and it was scary. Yeah. And I found that, you know, there's actually strength in admitting you don't know. The second thing is I gave an order which couldn't be done. And when it came to life, this was a bad order. My mindset 
which had always in the past been, oh, I gave a bad order. I got to give better orders. Yeah. Right. Better orders is the solution to bad orders. Yeah. So, but this time I was like, well, the suffering is very complicated. It takes 12 months to learn everything. <laughs> in the meantime, I'm going to give another bad order. We're going to die because my crew's trained to follow orders. Yeah. So what we need to do is create a structure where I'm not giving any orders. And this is the journey we set down. And we did it through changing our language. For example, the officers would tell me what they intended to do, not what they wanted to do or play, hope to do or requested permission to, but just what they intended to do. I could ask questions and I could stop them. But that signal, that was a special code that said, I already have permission to do this when I say the word intent. Even though we were kind of pushing the boundaries on the Navy regs, because the Navy regs would say, so, like, the captain shall authorize submerging the ship. And the officer would say, I intend to submerge the ship, yeah. check the water, all men are below, shut all the hatches, justify the thing. And I would just say, very well. Yeah. And we, we felt the sort of, it was on the borderline of the Navy reg, but it was close enough. Yeah. But the key was it, it gave the ownership and responsibility and the power to the officers. And the way I think about it now is I remove my gas pedal. As the leader, we always get this sense of, I got to make things happen and I have, I'm have pushing the gas. But then I become the decision maker who then has to evaluate my own decision. I go, put the brakes on. This way, we separate. The officers were decision makers yeah. and they would press the gas pedal. And it would come to me, I would just let it go through. Or if I needed to, I could press the brake pedal. But because I was emotionally detached from these decisions that were coming to me, I was more effective. And we as a team were more effective. Once you become the decision maker, you basically contaminated yourself from true impartial decision evaluation. And that, that biases your judgment. You, you basically get wed to your own decisions. Mm. This is an actual psychological phenomenon called escalation of commitment. I didn't know anything about this at the time. It was just desperation. And, <laughs> yeah. But I, I just knew that me giving more, dis, more orders was going to result in a high likelihood of a really bad thing happening. We needed to find a different way. Yeah. I mean, did they take to this new approach? Oh, my gosh. Or were they kind of hesitant? Most of them loved it. Yeah. Because... They're like, yeah, get out of the way, old man. I, I'm, I, because I like, I already know what to do. The problem isn't, oh, you're empowered. That solves nothing. Just telling people that. The problem is they don't have the words. The language that we use is much closer to direct and report. Mm. Even though we, I, I say you're empowered now. I refer to you as my direct reports. In other words, I direct, you report back. It doesn't make any sense. But we're so, these language patterns are these habits that we don't even think about. Mm. And so we can talk all we want about empowerment, but unless we actually change the language of the meeting, of the one-on-one -on -one conversation, of whatever it happens to be, then it's the same old thing. Okay, so let's dig into that language thing a bit more like what are some examples like you classic things you see i'll give you in, in a couple different domains number one okay in sort of the in decision space 
there's a lot of tell me what to do. It doesn't always sound like that, but it's, hey, well, I'm thinking about, well, what do you think of this? And so they, they sort of seduce you into hinting what you want, and then they just give it back to you. And then later they say, well, yeah, the boss told me to do it this way. So we would just say, okay, tell me what you see. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you intend to do and walk people up that ladder. Number two, when we'd be sitting in meetings, again, the default was we talk about something and then vote on it. And if someone raised an objection, the rest of the team would generally say something, oh, we've talked about that already. No, no, don't worry about that. We got that covered. In other words, they would discount and they would, they would react and respond. What I wanted was, number first of all, I wanted to see wide-ranging opinion before we contaminated anybody with conversation. Because as soon as you start conversing about something, you're anchoring the group, and you're making the people who feel differently feel more and more awkward and hesitant to speak up. I needed it to be easy for those outliers to speak up. So we would vote first in a probabilistic vote, not binary. Mm. So this would be like, how strongly do you feel about blank? Not, should we do something? And so that, and then that became one of the patterns of, of questioning, not, are you sure? Is it safe? Will it work? These are binary and they force a deterministic view of the future, which is not correct. The future is too complicated and it's more probabilistic. So weathermen get this, right? They don't say it's going to rain or not rain. It's a chance of rain, 40%. So the chance of this assumption being true, 40%. And so this was another... And the impact of this is what it allowed the diverse and divergent thinkers more comfort in speaking up. Mm. And therefore, the group benefited. And then when we heard those things, instead of being compelling, we tried to be curious. Oh, mm. tell me more about that. Oh, what are you saying that we're not seeing? And it's this sort of open mind. Now, at the end, we don't need to, we don't need to do what they say. Like, no, I really think we should go south. We may still, no, no, we're going to go north. But now I'm going to modify the plane a little bit because of something you told me. There's a bunch of fishing boats up there that are in the way. I don't know. But so the idea is the problem for me was all these old leadership patterns were so ingrained. The response, the binary questions, the, the idea of convincing people, the idea of building consensus in a meeting. It was actually the exact opposite of what I wanted to do. Mm. I wanted to invite outliers. I wanted to get dissent in the meeting. What we needed was consensus after the meeting. <laughs> I, I needed people's behaviors to support whatever we decide, committed to. In the meeting, I wanted, I wanted all these different ideas on the table. Mm, yeah, that, that makes sense. You just want everything out in the open. And then, and then when, you, when you talk about these situations, like you said, what are the probability of this and that? You can gauge their confidence level on their, their ideas, you know, so it's not tied to something emotional. Right. I'll give you a life and death situation. One of the hardest things that you do as a submarine commander is order uh, firing a, a weapon, a missile, yes. or a torpedo. And because at the other end of that, there's going to be dead people. Yep. So you really want to make sure you have the right target. So. And missiles are easier because they're pre-programmed to certain locations. But torpedoes, we have to select the right target. So let's say you're, and by the way, the targets masks themselves and they hide amongst, they want to look like a merchant ship. 
mm-hmm. or a cruise ship. And so let's say you're about to shoot a target, and then it's like you have this nagging doubt. Maybe it's like there's a 1% chance it's a cruise ship. So uh, yeah. I would add the last thing we would do before we launched a weapon, and fortunately for me, this was, these were all peacetime exercises because we didn't actually do this. But I'd ask my sonar chief, what's the probability that this is the right target? Mm. Now, in the past, what I've seen is, chief, is this the right target? It's binary. And then you're pushing the responsibility on him to make, mm. to tell you, oh, it's the right target. Then you shoot him. It's the wrong target. You just killed the wrong people. Why? Now I can blame the chief. This is not leadership. So the chief would say, um, I'm 95% sure. I'm 80% sure. Mm. Now it's up to me with it, armed with that information as the commander to make the final decision. But to try and force your people to say, no, it's safe is, is an advocation of your responsibility. And it's really a cognitive shortcut to then later blame them. Now, I saw one of your videos you were talking about, because I think ultimately, you know, when you're trying to uh, sort of involve other people in sort of making those decisions or, or advising you on those decisions, what levels you give up that control, right? And how do you approach that? I saw a nice little graph that you talked about that, but maybe you can elaborate on people that say, whoa, I don't want to give this control up or people that give too much control away. Like, how do you sort of kind of balance that? The amount of control you can give is going to be limited by your teams or any particular individual's competence and clarity. That's what we think the two input variables are. So competence, these are technical things, the physics of how reactors work. It's not a touchy-feely thing. You, You can give a test on it. If you're in banking, it might be questions about regulations. If you're in software engineering, it might be questions about how the code works. It's not, these are not ambiguous things. You either know it or you don't. But then on the other side, there's what we call clarity, organizational clarity, our purpose, our why, what are we trying to achieve? The one good place to start with that is simply ask, what's the time frame for which we're optimizing this decision? If we're trying to just win in the next 24 hours, We're going to make a different decision than if we're trying to win over the next 24 years. For example, I can defer all maintenance and run a nuclear power plant without doing any maintenance, probably for a couple months before things start, bad things start to happen. Mm -hmm. But eventually bad things are going to happen. So if I want to optimize for a longer run, I need to be doing changing the oil regularly and that kind of stuff, which may mean I need to limit speed now. I need, I need, might need to take some hit in production in order to build production capacity for the future. So that's kind of thinking is what are we optimizing the decision for today? In the building industry, you have the same problem. If you use like how much insulation do I put in? Well, I'll just put in what it tells me by code. <laughs> that's not really much of a decision. So if you want to optimize over the long run, you put in more insulation. If you just want to, if you say, well, the, this is just a home that people are going to buy and sell and live in, in an average of three and a half years, then they're not going to want to spend a lot of money on insulation. And so you're going to go towards the low side. But that's just an example of how the time frame colors what you end up doing. Now, you work with many companies like how do you approach that time frame question? Or is it very, very specific to the organization? Well, you just ask them in conversation 
or you set clarity. So uh, here, <laughs> this is a fun <laughs> example. So I was working with a, a technology company and in their, in their sort of one of their values or slogan, there was the phrase something about we, we create customer value, something over the long run. Mm-hmm. And, but it was undefined. Mm. I was in a leadership event with about 100 of the senior leaders. So I made a quick poll and I said, over the long run means, and I had one century, one decade, one year, one month, one week, one day, one hour. (laughs) And because the CEO was talking about this over the long run, he said about four times. And so I came up and I said, all right, I just want to ask some questions because the CEO said this about four times. What do you guys think he means when he says over the long run? (laughs) You know what? There were answers in every bin. Wow. Yeah. So the problem is if you leave the words undefined, your people will interpret it in the way, uh, whatever way you want. So why don't we just say over the next several decades, how come we don't just say that? Well, so you're not helping anyone because in your mind, you say, well, I might be 10 years, might be 20 years. I'm not sure. But your team is like, oh, he means the next 10 days, not the next day. Like if, if you're 18, that's a long run. <laughs> anyway, it was for me anyway, when I was that old. Yeah. So, I mean, you touched on many of these things already, but what are some other sort of common myths that you run across? I'm, I'm sure you run across a bunch of these things. Well, I can only tell you based on my experience and what I've learned, but I think one myth is that we think our way to new action. And I, I've seen a lot of change programs <laughs> It'll go like this. Someone will stand up and say, yeah, we're going to embark on a change initiative. By the way, 80% of change initiatives fail. And then they're going to, we're going to, but we're going to run it the same way every other change initiative is run, which is fundamentally, I like to simplify things. Yeah. We're going to think our way to new behaviors. Okay. So I'm going to convince you, I'm going to create a burning platform. I'm going to do something. And then somehow that's going to spark a new behavior. I don't think this is the right approach. I think the correct approach is to understand and identify what the new behaviors and language look like. And then in just these really, 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 really super tiny ways, practice them. And then what happens is, before we know it, the culture has changed. And people say, oh, here's an example. Don't say they, say we. We outlawed the word they on the submarine. So mm-hmm. by rank and department, we had all these days. And said, no more they on Santa Fe, which was nice because it rhymed. So people believed it. And it was very convenient <laughs> to remember. And so they got, so they got so casually like, well, we ordered the wrong part. We made a mistake. And what happens is all blame and recrimination goes away. And, yeah. and then, and initially it's kind of in your head. It's like, well, I'm saying we, but don't really feel like we, but I'm <laughs> yeah. going to say it because I'm just going to go along with this guy. And the cool thing is after some time, some time being maybe three months, maybe six months, it actually starts to feel like we. And so the way it really works is we act our way to new thinking. It's the actions that drive the thinking. And that's, that's another one of the things I think people have bad. Here's another one. Yeah. Organizations tend to push information to authority. In any hierarchy, there's a separate natural separation between the people on the periphery of the organization, the person sitting in the, the salesman who's sitting in the client's office, looking at the person, looking at the pictures on 
her desk, whatever it happens to be, and having an intimate understanding of reading their body language and how they're reacting to the words that they're saying. So they have all the information, the person in the code, person standing in front of the machinery, you can feel the vibration of the machinery in your feet. Then you have the authority that rests up here at headquarters, which could be who knows where. And so the, the traditional industrial age approach is to take the information, aggregate it from all these people, send it to the people in authority who make decisions, they come down from on high. And I, again, I don't think this is the correct approach. I think the correct approach is to take the authority for making decisions and push it to the people who natively have the information. Then you'll get much more responsive, resilient, agile organization and more fun because the people who have the information can just make the decision and they feel like, oh, I'm not just a cog in a machine. And then retention goes up and we don't need to train as many people and we can spend less money on high, and all these other things. Push authority to information, not information to authority. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned sales, it's interesting. A lot of salespeople are very good tactically because they're just trying to get that result. But yeah. Maybe they don't have the temperament for the long term. Right? They're judged on the short term. Like, how do you balance those two forces? Because sometimes they, they got to make sure the lights uh, stay on. Well, you got to decide if you do. I mean, it's because the incentive program for the salesman is mismatched whatever mm-hmm. the, the board of directors wants. If the board wants sales to the sales team to operate in a, with long term thinking, then they have to build this, excuse me, if the board wants the sales team to operate with long-term thinking, then they have to build the incentive structure in a way which benefits and rewards longer term. Let's say they want to sign long-term contracts. So you say, okay, if you get, you get 5%, your commission is 5% of a contract that's 12 months or less, 7.5% if it's 12 to 24 months, and 10% if it's more than 20 that seems kind of simplistic to me. I'm not sure that works. But the idea is design the reward system to parallel what you want. If you just say, well, the, the sales commission is set flat 7.5%. Oh, by the way, we really want long-term contracts. Then that's not going to work as well. That makes sense. So, I mean, you wrote your original book, you know, that, that uh, got all the recognition. You wrote this new book. What sort of inspired you to write this new book? Yeah, I, the new book, Leadership is Language. What happened was I found myself accidentally in this role of flying around the planet, giving speeches and helping organizations change their cultures, which I approached in a very tactical, language-based way. They'd be running meetings and I would say, well, hey, why don't we run it? Why don't we do it a little bit different? Ask a question like this. It was almost just like, say these words. And people said, well, this is great. I had, and then pretty soon I had this long list. Don't say that, say this. But people said, well, you know, when I'm going through my day, I can't remember this list of 47 things. Yeah. And so that challenged me to look at what's the underlying pattern. And so this book, the value of the book, I think, is to help people in three ways. Number one, it has a lot of ask questions, ask it this way, state it this way, man, say the words this way. And the fact that these small changes can have big impact. And number two, it sets these into a pattern, which I call playbook. 
And the idea comes from a sense that we're programmed to respond in certain ways. If someone comes to you and tells you something you don't like, like, oh, I think we should delay the product launch, then you're, you're probably going to respond with some sort of either justification for launching on time or, well, why would you want to do that? In other words, it's, it's, I call it be compelling. But what you want to be is curious. Be curious, not compelling. In other words, don't try and convince them they're wrong. Try and understand what it is that they're saying with the possibility that maybe you're wrong. Now, at the end, you don't need to, I'm not saying always listen to them in terms of what they're suggesting as actions, but do listen when they have something to tell you. Because if you do listen and you reward that, then what you do is you'll start hearing more things and you'll start hearing when there's problems. And you won't be like, oh, I never knew there was a problem with the 737 Max software. How come I didn't hear this? Yeah, well, because you didn't create a culture whereby that sort of communication was cherished. It was frowned upon and squelched. So, so that's the so there are these six plays okay. that we've been inherited from the Industrial Revolution. Play number one is obey the clock. Okay. What I'm saying, what we want to do is control the clock. Everyone knows what obey the clock is. That's why we have clockwork, and that's why we clock in. We clock. We pay people by the hour, and it's there's this sense of pressure, relentless pressure. It makes it harder to think. I perceive it as stress. But we want to control the clock because they want the ability to periodically relieve that pressure and allow people to be fully present in their minds in order to make good decisions. So that's where it starts, and it just cascades mm-hmm. down from there. And, and then those six plays are embedded in a, even a bigger underlying pattern of thinking and doing. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout our lives, we dance between these two ways of using our brain, between action, focused, typically physical interaction with the world. I'm doing something. I'm coding. I'm, I'm, in manu- I'm making something. I'm installing something. I'm talking to somebody. And then the other kind of action is contemplative, reflective, broad perspective. And, and in the first action, in doing, we want to be focused. And we want to reduce variability. I want every brick to be laid the same as every other brick. I don't want, I don't want bigger bricks, little bricks, or any of that stuff. Every brick, I want all the same size bricks. Variability in brick size is bad. But then when I'm going to make decisions like, well, what's the building going to look like? And what are we going to use it for? I want a broad set of ideas. Well, what if we do this? What if we have the the, the truck parking over here, which side is sunny, where, how will the sun hit the building in, in the middle of winter, in the middle of summer, and, and think broadly about it. Variability and diversity is a benefit over there. I want to cast a wide net. And so it's, it's kind of like head down versus head up. Now when we head up, then we head down. And transitioning, and the key is, to be an agile, resilient, enduring organization, I need to be able to transition between broad, expansive thinking and narrow, focused activity mm. easily. I need to be able to go back and forth. And I need to be really broadly expansive and then really super focused. Mm. And when I put all that together, what I get is a learning organization that can adapt to the changing environment. 
Wow. <laughs> I see what you're talking about. Definitely. Because I think the tendency, I, I think I noticed like stuff that we've gone through as well is that we get too expansive and then, oh, we got to narrow things, but then the creativity gets sucked out. Right. And what you're saying is you need a organization that kind of had kind of oscillates between sort of expansive. And then when it's time to execute, simplify the best ideas and then move forward. Right. Which makes a lot of sense. Right. So, I mean, you've gone through a lot. You've, you did the big stint with the summary, Mike. Since then, like, what sort of things have you learned that you've really grown from? Because that was such a defining thing with the nuclear uh, summary and, and what you learned there. But since then, you've taken that message to the, the corporate world. But at what point did you kind of, where, where did you get your, your most sort of growth and learning when you transitioned over? Well, basically, I didn't know what I was doing. I wrote this book, and fortunately, I didn't publish it until it was actually pretty good, and, and I resisted just just shooting something out there. And I ended up getting pretty vulnerable. I really, want, I really ended up, I was, I was just so sick and tired of the whole thing, and I just said, well, basically, F it kind of a thing. And I, I just, I'm just going to expose my inner fears and doubts and what was going on in my head? I'm going to stop pretending like I was knew all the answers ahead. All that crap, which is actually what happened on the submarine. So it kind of parallels that. But for some reason, I was like drawn back into that. Well, let me tell you how you should do. This. Anyway, so I cast all that aside, and it ended up like that's part of the magic. So that ended up helping. And now I'm I'm running a company. So I thought I was running my company. That was wrong. I'm just a product. So I'd be out keynote, flying around keynote or whatever, and then trying to, to manage the business processes and our daily meetings and all this kind of stuff. That was stupid. And so finally, I realized I'm not actually managing my company. <laughs> I'm just a product of the company. And then, so I'm still, quote, the president, but I have a COO now, and, and he's actually, you get the idea. <laughs> but it's funny because of all the people that this should happen to, I was a perfect one because I was I, I, like my whole, our whole approach is give control in a measured way to the people around you so they can rise and be, be the best that they can be. But here I was running my company, trying to hold on to control of my company when it wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah, for sure. Now, so you're busy, you're flying around, you're, you're doing all these things. I mean, what, what sort of habits or routines kind of, hold this whole thing together? I'm a huge routine guy. I have, I'm really good when I'm home. I have this whole routine. Every morning I do yoga, I have a stretching program, then I do a Sudoku, then I do the crossword puzzle. It takes me like an hour to get through this whole deal. The problem is when I would go on travel, Mm. it would get broken up. And for a long time, I held on to this all or nothing sort of approach, which was, so for me, a workout was 90 minutes of sweat where my heart rate got cranked up pretty high. And I just didn't have a chance to do that sometimes. And so I wouldn't do anything. Mm. But now I'm much more accepting of a partial solution. So maybe I can't run, but I can, I can walk to the venue, which is eight blocks away, instead of taking an Uber. Maybe I can't get on the exercise bike. I can do some push-ups and squats in my room. 
something like that. So I've been sort of giving myself permission to do partial. If I can't do everything the way I wish I could back when I was 30, (laughs) then I can do a partial thing. And I think that helps out. It takes, it takes some of the stress out of you. Yeah. Makes sense. Now, is there anything that I should have asked you, but yeah, I didn't. No, you're a genius (laughs) questioner. (laughs) Now, (laughs) well, maybe this. Usually people say, how can I get a... This to me seems like a silly question. So maybe they say, how can we get a hold of you? Well, just type my name, Google my name. But my new book's called Leadership is Language. I'm super jazzed. If you get a copy, I hope it helps you. Like I say, these are things to say within a structure to rewrite your plays, re-engineer the language. I'm an engineer, so it's not touchy-feely stuff. Yeah. It's not soft skills. I hate that word. I believe it'll make your team better. Then send me a note. Catch me on LinkedIn, David Marquet, or send me an email, david at tunershiparound.com. Let me know how it goes. Let me know what you're learning. Let me know what your team's achieving. I'd love to hear. Perfect. Thank you, David. Tots. Thanks. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.